All right, open your Bibles up with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We were in chapter 5 last week. If you have one of our uh, Bibles uh, from the welcome table or the bookshelf over here, it's on page 946. Uh, And if you need that Bible, you keep that Bible, okay? You don't need to put that back. You can have it. Uh, We're going to finish up the chapter this morning by looking at verses 31 through 47. And if, if this is your first Sunday with us, You'll, you'll catch right along. You'll jump right in with us. John repeats a lot of the same themes over and over and over again, mostly because we need to hear them over and over and over again. Peter says in one of his letters, I'll, I see fit even though I'm about to leave this world, I, I see it important that, that I leave you with reminders. We need to be reminded all the time about what we've been given in Christ. And so John's gospel is good for us in that way. And so, uh, yeah, you're going you're gonna to join us in, in the middle of chapter 5, but uh, you'll hear the same truths that we've been uh, reading about and, and preaching uh, since we've begun this gospel. Um, last week, we saw Jesus heal a man on the Sabbath, and that led to an argument with the Jews, the religious leaders of the Jews, uh, in which Jesus then made some really staggering claims about himself. Listen to what he said. He said uh, he claimed equality with God, the Father, as God the Son. I mean, that's pretty huge, right? Uh, He claimed to be able to raise the dead and give life to whomever he wants, and he claimed to be the judge who will give the final verdict on every human being who has ever lived. Now, now separate those three together, or or from each other. Pick one, and if he makes any one of those claims, this is crazy, right? But he stacks them on top of each other and says, "This this is what I am. This is who I am. Nobody else can make these claims. And we're gonna see that this morning. Um, We're going to see Jesus present these Jews with witnesses that can back up these claims that he's made about himself. This passage then is in, it's important to us, to every one of us, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, because it not only solidifies the reality of who Jesus is, we get a glimpse here. Jesus himself actually tells us how to interpret all of Scripture. This is huge for us, right? Because if we we get Scripture wrong, then we get life wrong. If we get scripture wrong, then we get life wrong. And so since this is God's word, and God's word uh, is only understood properly with the Spirit's guidance, I want to pray and ask the Lord to guide us by his Spirit, and then we will jump into the message. Father, we thank you for your word. Again, foundation, sure and steady. And we thank you for your Spirit who you have given to us to live in us to guide us into all truth. We thank you for your son who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we pray this morning that you would use your word and your spirit to direct us as your people straight to your son. And for those in here who have yet to know him, I pray that today is the day that they see Christ for who he truly is, our savior. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've always enjoyed courtroom drama Shows, I don't know about you, kind of like the arguments back and forth and, and the, uh, the, the, the different uh, 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 evidences and things that show up. The, the good ones, they tend to build suspense. If, you, if you've ever watched one, uh, whether it's like a documentary or a, you know, a made-up show or whatever, they tend to build suspense and they keep you guessing about whether the person on trial is, is guilty or, or innocent. And about the time you're like, oh man, they're, they're going behind bars for the rest of their lives, that's when the defense... Uh, calls to the stand a key witness that ends up exonerating the defendant 
and then, and then pointing to the guilt of someone else, right? All the good ones do this. They keep you in suspense, and then, and then they, they do this turnabout. John's gospel has a, a courtroom motif, a, a trial motif, a, a theme, if you will, okay? Throughout his gospel, a, a lot of times you'll see the religious leaders interrogating Jesus, questioning Jesus as if he's on trial trying to prove him guilty of something, breaking the law like we saw last week on the, on the Sabbath, right? But ultimately what John reveals is it's not Jesus that's on trial. It's the whole world. And the gospel shows us that Jesus is the one that actually is putting the world on trial himself because he's the one that makes the, the true claims. And now we have to do something with that. Today's passage reminds me of a courtroom drama and so that's how I want to look at it together with you. We're going to start by looking at Jesus as the defendant, and then we'll see Jesus become the prosecutor. We'll watch as witnesses are called to the stand and on Christ's behalf, and then we'll we'll see Christ himself has called us as witnesses to testify to the reality of who he is. And so here's our main idea for today from our text. Because the scriptures uphold the testimony of Christ, we must testify about the Christ of the scriptures. Because the scriptures uphold the testimony of Christ, then we must testify about the Christ of the scriptures. Let's look at Jesus as the defendant. Now, if, again, if you've watched any kind of courtroom thing, you, you get sort of a mixed bag uh, of, uh, of lawyers that, that think it's a good idea to put the defendant on the stand to, to give personal testimony or think it's a bad idea to put the, the defendant on the stand. Uh, sometimes it can help, sometimes it can hurt, Right? Last week, we saw the religious leaders of the Jews. They began persecuting Jesus, and they accused him of breaking the law by healing a man on the Sabbath. They called Jesus then to the proverbial witness stand. He has to give testimony about himself, and then he made those audacious claims about himself, equality with God, the ability to raise the dead and give life, and then to be the judge of the whole world. And so we took a week-long recess, if you will, in the court And now we're picking back up. Court is back in session. This is the same conversation, and Jesus is still on the the stand. So let's listen together to the words of our Lord as he continues to give his defense. Look at John chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. If I testify about myself, my my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. Now, according to Old Testament law, Jewish law, witnesses, uh, a witness testimony was, uh, was not considered credible unless there was at least one other witness to verify the claims that were being made, okay? The testimony of at least two, two witnesses, two to three, before they, were, uh, before they were admissible, if you will. In chapter 8, we'll see that Jesus addresses this law more specifically, but here it seems that he was making this statement for a different reason. He wasn't saying that because he was the only witness, his testimony wasn't legally valid. God would never say, I'm lying to you, right? Not because he's capable of lying and just doesn't want us to know. It's because he always speaks the truth. He never lies. He wasn't calling himself a liar. He wasn't saying that his his testimony needed to be thrown out because it wasn't legally valid. It seems here that Jesus was proving the validity of his own testimony 
by showing that it wasn't even his testimony to begin with. Remember what he said back in verse 19 last week? The son can do nothing on his own. The son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. Or how about what John said back in chapter 3, verses 32 through 34? He says, he testifies, he being Jesus, to what he has seen and heard. And yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who's accepted his testimony has affirmed what? That God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words since he gives the Spirit without measure. In chapter 12, verses 49 and 50, Jesus will tell a crowd of people, for I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life, so the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus' testimony is valid because it's not his own testimony. It's his father's testimony. And we just read in 1 John chapter 5, right? God's testimony is greater. God's testimony is greater. Here in verse 32, when he told the Jews that there was another who testified him uh, about him, he's most likely referring to the father himself. But the Jews probably missed that because of what Jesus said next. We're going to call the next witness to the stand, okay? John the Baptist, look at verse 33. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus is not dependent upon any human testimony. He does not need the help of any man because he already had the testimony of the Father, which were the very words of God himself. But Jesus pointed to John the Baptist's testimony for the sake of these Jews who were persecuting Jesus and trying to kill him. Again, we see the compassion of Jesus again here. Compassion last week to heal the man at the pool. Compassion this week to actually tell the truth to these who are accusing him of breaking the law and lying. Jesus validated John the Baptist's testimony so that these Jews might be saved from their unbelief and find eternal life in Christ. This is incredible. He just said, I'm the judge. And yet he's giving them the truth so that they can have a defense. We've heard John the Baptist's testimony already in chapters 1 and chapter 3. He made it clear that he wasn't the Messiah, right? But he also made it clear that Jesus was the Messiah. Here in verse 35, Jesus said that John was a, a burning and shining lamp and the Jews were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. When he came, there was, a, there was a big hubbub all over the place, right? Like people are starting to ask, is this the prophet? Is this the Messiah? Who is this guy? And John's like, I'm not him, but I know who is. People got excited, right? They've been waiting for this Messiah to come. What Jesus says here, though, John was a burning and shining lamp, and the Jews were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, was most likely an allusion to, to Psalm 132, 16 and 17. You see, Jesus uses the Hebrew Bible too, right? And in that psalm, God said that his people will rejoice because he's prepared a lamp for his anointed one. You know what the Hebrew word for anointed one is? 
In the English, it's translated as Messiah. A lamp is a vessel for the light. A lamp is not the light. First, uh, in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. John the gospel writer was saying those things about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, who is Jesus Christ. And after that true light came, John the Baptist testified about him, and then he gladly stepped aside. Do you remember what he said at the end of chapter 3? He, being Jesus, must increase, and I must decrease. Go listen to his voice now. I'm the best man. He's the bridegroom. And I rejoice at his voice. You should too. As important as John the Baptist's testimony was, Jesus claimed to have a better one. And, and so let's call this next witness to the stand. It's the miracles themselves. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works that I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda served as a testimony. The healing of the royal official's son before that in chapter 4 served as a testimony. The turning of the water into wine back in chapter 2 served as a testimony. Back in verse 20 here, Jesus told the religious leaders, the Father will show me greater works than these so that you will all be amazed. In his whole gospel, John lays out seven works, seven signs that Jesus does and, and, and what is the testimony that all of these works give. John tells us the whole purpose in chapter 20, right? Verses 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs, many other works in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written, these seven that I've given you, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The testimony of God reveals the compassion of God to save sinners through his Son. The testimony of God reveals the compassion of God to save sinners through his Son. That's what John's gospel is all about. That's what all of Scripture is all about. So far, Jesus has presented a rock-solid defense, but he's about to call a key witness to the stand here. And in, that, in calling this witness to the stand, Jesus will go from defendant to prosecutor. Look at verse 37, 37 and 38. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You've not heard his voice at any time, and you haven't seen his form you don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. Who's the key witness here? It's the Father himself. Why is he the key witness? Because all of these other witnesses that we've seen so far are tied to him. The Father sent the Son, right? The Father sent the Son so that the Son could reveal the Father. The Father sent John the Baptist and revealed to him that Jesus was the Son of God. We see all of this in chapter 1. 
The Father gave Jesus these works to do and the words to say. We've seen that already. Jesus has made that clear. But the Father is also the key witness because he is the one who exonerates the Son and proves the guilt of someone else. He's the one who exonerates the Son and implicates the religious leaders as the ones who are actually guilty. And Jesus proved this with a counter-argument here. Just as, or, or the Father hasn't just shown the Son everything, which he has, but Jesus says he's also shown his people enough to leave them without excuse for their unbelief. The Father's shown me everything, but you've also seen enough, is what he's telling the religious leaders. They had not heard God's voice at any time as Moses did, as the prophets did, audibly hearing from God, and yet it was God himself who was telling them this. They were hearing the voice of God, and they didn't recognize it. They hadn't seen God's form, and yet it was God in the flesh standing there in front of them that they were beholding with their own eyes, and they didn't recognize him. And Jesus told them that they didn't have God's word residing in them because they rejected the one who is the living word of God. You remember chapter one, Jesus is the logos of God, the word word became flesh and dwelt among us. They did not have the logos of God in them because they did not see the logos in front of them. Look at verse 39. 39 and 40. You pour over the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Now listen, this is, this, if he made audacious claims about himself, this is offensive to these guys. What he just said, these were top Bible scholars of their day that Jesus was talking to. These men knew their Bibles, a.k.a. our Old Testament, forward and backward. Many of them could recite large portions, if not all of it, by memory. Anybody in here can do that? They already have a leg up on us, right? They poured over the scriptures, Jesus says. They, they studied these scriptures diligently. They searched them intently as a way of life. For what? So that they could find life. And yet Jesus said that these Jews missed the entire point of everything that they were reading, everything that they were studying, everything that they'd given their lives over to. Why? because they were looking for the right thing in the wrong place. The scriptures are the means that get us to life in Christ. They are not the end in themselves. Jesus called the scriptures themselves to the stand as a witness against these religious leaders. And here's the guilty verdict. The Jews thought that the scriptures gave them life but they missed the reality that the scriptures gave them the testimony of Jesus and Jesus gives them life. So close, but so far away, right? They didn't neglect the scriptures, but they neglected Christ in the scriptures. They were willing to go to the scriptures over and over again, but yet they were unwilling to go to Jesus himself. Jesus said these things so that they might be saved. 
but because they were unwilling to believe him, they were unable to find the very thing that they were looking for, standing right in front of them, eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, this reality ought to lead to some humble reflection on our part. Listen, if the top scholars of Scripture who devoted their entire lives to the study of it could miss the entire point of it, then we can too, right? One pastor put it this way, missing Jesus when you're studying Scripture is now not just a Jewish problem. Yeah, we read about it over and over and over in Scripture, right? But he says it's a human problem. It affects all of us. If we get Scripture wrong, we get life wrong, right? All of our life, whether we understand that or not, believe that or not, want to know that or not, is tied to what God has revealed to us in his scriptures. If we get this wrong, if we ignore this completely, we get life wrong, we miss eternal life. We live in a time where biblical literacy, even among believers, it has significantly decreased Fewer people know the content of the Scripture, and fewer people still know the intent of Scripture. But it's not enough for us to help people know what is in the Bible. We also need to help them understand why it's in there. And in order to do that, we need to help them understand how to interpret the meaning of Scripture, no matter where we're at in it. And Jesus just gave us the ultimate principle for interpreting all of Scripture. You know what he said? It's about me. I'm the guy. Everything in there points to me. Back in our Redeemer Kids classrooms, we have the Jesus Storybook Bible written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. I cannot read that thing without... It just brings me to tears every time. Listen, sometimes we need to hear the gospel the way a child needs to hear the gospel to remember the gospel, right? In the opening pages, she writes, I can't, can't even read this without choking up. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have rules, some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. The Bible is about God and what he has done. Other people think that the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people that you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. <laughs> No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who, who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one that he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is that it is true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. 
the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle. A piece that makes all other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see this beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. Sometimes we just need to hear it that way, don't we? We're entering the Christmas and Advent season where we celebrate and reflect on the birth of this child. Jesus Christ, who grew into the man, standing right here in front of these Pharisees and these Jewish leaders in John chapter 5, testifying to his true identity as the Son of God, as the, the hero, the prince. And as the Son of God, he would give his life on the cross as a ransom to pay the penalty for the sins of sinners who would otherwise be unwilling to come to him apart from his own grace to draw us in. He would take the Father's holy wrath upon himself so that we could receive the Father's holy love. And the Father would ultimately vindicate, exonerate the Son by raising him from the dead on the third day to show that the guilt was not his but ours. And the risen Christ would freely give eternal life to all who believe what the scriptures have revealed about him. Have you come to know Jesus so that you may have life? Or are you still searching for it somewhere else? Maybe you think that you can find it by following the rules in the Bible. Maybe you think that you can find life by copying heroes like David or Esther or Daniel or someone else. You can only find life in the one true hero who's followed all the rules. He's followed all the rules, and then he laid down his life because he loved the rule breakers and the wannabe heroes. Knowledge of the scriptures does you no good if it doesn't lead you to know the Christ of the scriptures. You can have the entire Bible front and back memorized and you can still miss the whole point. Why not believe the one that the Father sent? Why not put your trust in Jesus? Turn from your sins, believe in him. The sad reality is that it's impossible to or that it that's it's actually possible to love the Bible and not love Jesus Christ. And a failure to love Christ is a failure to love God himself. And these Jews were guilty of that. And in these next verses, Jesus submitted more evidence of their guilt. Look at verse 41 through 44. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and yet you, you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. Think about the weight of the accusation that Jesus made in verse 41. Or 42, excuse me. You have no love for God within you. No love for God within you. These were the religious leaders 
of the Jews that he was talking to. They're not just Bible scholars. These were the, the pious elite of God's chosen people. They, they prided themselves on loving God, and that's where they went wrong because they prided themselves. Jesus told them it wasn't God that they loved. It was their own selves. You love you more than you love God. That's what he just said. Jesus doesn't accept glory or praise from people because he always understands the human heart. Remember the end of chapter 2? Jesus did not need anyone to testify about a man. He doesn't need a, a testimony about a human. For he himself knew what was in man. These Jews had unrighteous affections and they had unrighteous intentions. They loved themselves more than they loved God and they sought praise from men instead of approval from God. They were looking in the wrong place for the wrong things. Jesus came in the Father's name. That means that he's the true Messiah who not only had the authority of the Father, uh, but, but in that authority, he, he was given that to fully represent the, and reveal the very character and the nature of the Father. Hebrews 1, 3, right? Says that, or Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 tells us that long ago, God spoke through the prophets. These days, he's spoken to us through his son, who is the exact, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus came to do this. He came in the authority of the Father, to fully represent and reveal the very character and nature of the Father, not just to these Jewish leaders standing here, not just to the Jews as a people, but to the whole world. John 3, 16, for God loved not just the Jews, but the world. If these Jewish leaders really loved God, then they would have accepted Jesus, but instead they, they rejected him. And they readily accepted any wannabe Messiah who made them look good or championed their agendas. We're going to see in chapter 19, I believe, where, where uh, they, they yell out, crucify Jesus, and they say, release Barabbas to us. Why? Barabbas was a revolutionary. And they, they were down with Rome. They wanted to get out from underneath that. They, they didn't want Jesus at all. And they were willing to, to take a revolutionary and a murderer. Jesus was taking these Jewish leaders to task. The, the prosecution's argument was strong against them, right? But in these last few verses, the prosecution will rest because Jesus turns their own lawyer against them. Look at verse 45, and we'll go to the end, 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? Jesus didn't have to testify against these Jews because Moses already had, right? They, had, they, they believed, they were convinced that Moses was sent by God and they revered Moses because God gave them the law through Moses. But they misinterpreted the scriptures that Moses wrote and so they didn't believe that Jesus was sent by God, and they failed to see that Jesus was the greater deliverer than Moses. Jesus was the greater mediator than Moses. These religious leaders missed what Philip 
fully understood or at least understood enough to then grow in that understanding back in chapter 1 when he found Nathaniel. Remember what he said? He found Nathaniel and he said, we have found the one that Moses wrote about and so did the prophets. Philip said, hey, hey, you know our Bible? We found the guy it's talking about. Philip understood that Moses wrote about Jesus, and we can verify that ourselves, right? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, often called the Torah or the Pentateuch. Remember what he wrote in Genesis 3.15? Moses wrote these words. He was talking about, uh, he, he, he was uh, uh, giving us God's conversation with the woman and the man in the garden and, and, the, and the serpent after they had sinned, and God promised to bring a serpent crusher from the offspring of the woman. And then we worked our way through the book of Genesis. That's what we were in before we got to John's gospel. We, we worked our way through the book of Genesis together, and we saw many potential candidates that could have been the serpent crusher. They looked like heroes, but they weren't. They always disqualified themselves somehow and revealed their own need for the serpent crusher. But then we also saw God's faithfulness to keep that promise even through their failures, and we saw how he ultimately fulfilled that promise in Jesus Christ. He's the serpent crusher. He's the one. Moses also wrote about the exodus from Egypt. Jesus is the one who brings the new exodus for God's people and frees us from slavery, not, not from a, a nation, but from our own sin. Moses wrote about the Passover. Jesus is the true Passover lamb who rescues people from spiritual death through his own sacrificial blood. Moses gave instructions for the tabernacle. We saw in John chapter 1, Jesus called himself the true temple. These are just a few of the many ways that Moses wrote about Jesus, although you won't find Jesus' name anywhere in Moses' writings. And that's because God in his sovereign wisdom chose to reveal his ultimate plan of redemption in Christ over time. We just sang about it. Come behold the wondrous mystery, right? The Apostle Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Colossians. Colossians 1, 25 through 27. I've become the church's servant, Paul's saying this, according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery. And by the way, when he's talking about the word of God, what's he referring to? The Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Here it is. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious, the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus told these religious leaders, listen, you have set your hope on Moses, but Moses' hope was set on me. If you don't believe his words, then you won't believe my words. And if you don't believe my words, then you have no hope. No hope at all. The writer of, the Hebrew, of Hebrews captures Moses' hope well, I think, in Hebrews 11. 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. Oh, that that would be our own heart's attitude. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. 
the glorious wealth of this mystery. Since Moses was looking ahead to the reward, Moses' hope and our hope as believers in Christ are one and the same. His hope is our hope. And, and that's because we share, er, and, and, as be, er, and because we share that hope, Christ has also called us to witness and as witnesses who testify to this hope that we share in him. Listen, our testimony does not mean that we speak for Jesus. Our testimony means that we speak about Jesus. Jesus clearly speaks for himself, does he not? That's why we proclaim him from the scriptures, because it's through the scriptures that he has spoken and most clearly revealed himself. What, we, what have we been looking at this morning? I've been just up here riffing on whatever. We've had our noses in the word of God. The scriptures, they give testimony to Jesus. In fact, we wouldn't know all of these other witnesses that we talked about this morning if we didn't have the word of God to tell us about them. When Jesus speaks, God is speaking. So when we testify about what Christ has said, we testify about what God has said. This is why Paul calls us ambassadors in 2 Corinthians 5, because we don't speak our own words. We speak the words of the one whom we represent. This is why Paul encourages Timothy to be diligent, to present himself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. That's why Peter instructs believers to be ready at any time to gently and respectfully give a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that we have that is in us, 1 Peter 3.15. In order to testify about Christ from the scriptures, we need to see Christ in the scriptures, right? Including the Old Testament, it's no longer just the Bible for the Jews. It's no longer just the Hebrew Bible. Together with the New Testament, all of, of, of Scripture is Christian Scripture. Jesus isn't literally in every word of the Old Testament, but as Sally Lloyd-Jones put it, every story whispers his name. If you've never read the Old Testament because you think it's irrelevant or you don't understand it, you're probably in good company. But the new year is coming. It's a great time to start reading through it. If you want some ideas for reading plans, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about it. When you walked in, you, you, you grabbed this handout, hopefully. If you didn't, there should be some left on the table. I love this handout. It's from Visual Theology. Jesus cover to cover. At a glance, it helps us get in the mindset of looking for Jesus in all of Scripture. Gives us these themes as we work our way through the Old Testament and the New Testament to help us figure out what they're, what they're pointing to about Christ. I'd encourage you to pick one of those up. During our Advent series, we're going to look at some of the Old Testament passages and see how they anticipate the arrival of the coming king. We'll start with Psalm 2 next week. You can read that. Read it once every day this week. Ask the Lord to give you wisdom through his Holy Spirit to, to help you see how that points to Jesus Acts chapter 13 is an excellent example of what it looks like to proclaim Christ from the Old Testament. Paul does that. Read it this week and learn from Paul. And then take some time to write out your own personal testimony. If you've never done that before, it's super helpful to do. Put it down on paper. Paul gives his, his testimony in Acts 26. You read that. It's a good template to follow. And again, he pulls in Scripture. 
Our personal testimonies are meant to testify to the good news of the gospel. So if you write your testimony out, be sure to include the gospel in it. Pray and ask God to give you wisdom through his Holy Spirit to guide you and help you. Word the gospel with the words of Scripture. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to come up with the words. God's given us the words to present it clearly. What passages come to mind as you think about the gospel message? Use those in your testimony. Listen, invite a brother or sister in Christ to help you work on it together. Do it together and then share it with each other. How encouraging would it be for you to review the gospel with one another and then share how how Christ is changing your lives through it? I don't know how anybody can be discouraged by that. And after you've written out your testimony with the gospel and you've shared it with a brother or sister in Christ, then ask God to to lead you to at least one unbeliever who needs to hear it. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. It's also for believers. But the gospel is also not just for believers. It's for unbelievers too. We need to preach it to both. Give that person the biblical reasons for the hope that you have in Christ. Invite him or her to hope in Jesus too. Help that person see Christ for who he truly is. Today we've seen Jesus as both the defendant and the prosecutor. We've heard ample witness testimony and we've been called to the witness stand ourselves. Because of the the, the scriptures, because they uphold the testimony of Christ, then we must testify about the, the Christ of the scriptures. We say these things so that people may believe in Jesus and be saved. We point them to Jesus so that they will come to him for eternal life. We share We share the hope of all who have God's word residing in them. We sang about it this morning. It's sure. And we share that hope so that Christ would come to reside in those who have no hope. And so may we pour over the scriptures not to find our end in them, not to find life in them, but to see Jesus and grow in our love for him. May we rejoice that even though he doesn't depend on our testimony, he graciously uses us as lamps to carry his light to others. And because we've set our hope on Christ alone, may we be determined determined to make Christ's testimony our testimony so that we use his words and not ours, and he alone gets the glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of Jesus Christ that you've given to us in your word and the multiple witnesses that we see here that speak to the reality of who Jesus is. Your testimony, his testimony is enough and yet you have given us ample evidence that he can back up the claims that he has made. We pray that you would help us to grow as witnesses to this Jesus that we know from the scriptures. That we would be more concerned with knowing him and revealing him as the scriptures have presented him and we would do that to others than to try to craft Jesus into something else in an effort to reach other people. Your word is enough. We pray that you would give us wisdom to know it and to speak it to others so that they might believe and be saved. And we thank you for your compassion, not only to save, but then to use those whom you save to take this good news to others. 
We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.